pray for maybe new ways that God would invite us to care for and love our community during this school year. God is on the move in this next generation. And that's for our students and also the students of Cumberland County. So God, we're asking for a move of your spirit among this next generation. Give us your wisdom, your eyes, to see how we could advance forward with you. Amen. God bless you, church family. Good morning, church. I'm going to read the scripture this morning. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Good morning. Glad to be with you. Uh, thank you for joining us online. I've been hearing uh, some fun stories of, of people that are joining us from all over the place. Uh, and I want you to know, if you're joining us online, our desire is that we would continue, even though our, we want to be physically together, our desire is to continue to maintain a strong online presence, uh, if that's the way that you can connect to community. Uh, but if you're joining us online, please let us know that you're here. So you can do that by emailing us, pastors at lfachurch.org, and say, hey, we're, we're here, we're joining online, or uh, by uh, saying hello to Pastor Eric, who's monitoring the, the, Facebook, uh, the Facebook Live uh, connection. So wherever you are, glad that you are here. Uh, we're going to be continuing our verse-by-verse -verse study through 1 Timothy. Uh, the theme of this book is that the little household is to be the, the model for the larger household of God. And the theme throughout the book of that household, or the, I'm sorry, the fruit of that household uh, is to be uh, the advance of the kingdom of God. And the way the kingdom of God advances is through the message or the good news of Jesus. So the priority is this gospel that is pushing back the darkness, that is advancing against the kingdom of darkness. And so Paul's writing this letter to uh, an early church pastor named Timothy um, in the city of Ephesus to help him lead the household of God, the expression of God's household there, 
uh, to be a good partner in this global advance of the kingdom of God. And so Paul has seen himself as called by God to proclaim this message to the Gentile world. And so uh, with every war that has ever been waged, there is always a weapon that one of the sides will pursue that they believe will win the war. Uh, if you remember in World War I, World War II, uh, Germany pursued the U-boat, the, 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 the submarine as, uh, as advanced technology in order to win the war in some good fiction like Lord of the Rings. Uh, everyone is pursuing the, the ring of power that they're all tempted by because if they can secure this, uh, they can win the war. Uh, and also in World War II, you have the atomic bomb uh, that was pursued, that was dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Uh, that was a, that was a, a weapon to, to end the war. And then uh, again, some good movies, the Death Star was created uh, as a weapon to win against the rebellion. Right? And, and as I've studied a little bit about World War II, uh, I've come across some people who speculate that if, uh, if Hitler had pursued uh, the advancements of the physicists, the German physicists, physicists he, could have, he could have been the one securing the atomic bomb, but instead he leaned into uh, the weapon of the U-boat, um, and uh, the outcome of the war could have been very different. But what Paul is doing is he's sig signaling now to Timothy as we turn into chapter 2 that there is a certain weapon that the people of God need to use in their advancement of the kingdom of God. As they are pushing back the darkness, there is a weapon that Paul is going to call the church to take up arms with. Uh, and the weapon he's going to call them to is the weapon of prayer. So in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 10, uh, we're going to see this emphasis of Paul to Timothy about the use of prayer. Dr. Tony Evans, uh, he says that uh, where the people of God, prayer is where the people of God invite, right, the spiritual into the, uh, the spiritual into the physical and the invisible to be visible. That's what prayer does. In the, in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, that's the denomination or network of churches that we're part of. One of their core values, I think it's their third, second or third core value, is that prayer is the primary work of God's people. I remember when I heard, first heard that, I'm like, nah, that seems like a bit of an overstatement. But the more I go on and the more I grow in Jesus, the more I see how true that is, that prayer is the primary work of God's people, James 4, 2 says it this way, you do not have because you do not ask God, right? So uh, I believe this is precisely the desire that God has for us, that he desires us to be a people that, that are preoccupied with prayer. And so I hope that as we read Timothy's mail from Paul this morning, we're going to hear and respond to God's invitation to us, as well as the church of Ephesus, to be a household or a community of prayer. So what we're going to see here in these first 10 verses, we're going to see Paul attempting to make prayer the first tool in the toolbox the, the primary weapon of the church, the main ingredient, the rally cry of the mission. I'm running out of analogies, but you get the point. 
right? That, that he's, he's bringing prayer to be the central focus of the people of God. We've just established in verse one, Timothy is a credible representative to deal with false teachers. And then as we turn from chapter one to chapter two, the first thing that Paul lays out is prayer. So here's how we're gonna look at this passage. The first four verses, we're gonna see Paul's call for the church to pray. And then we're gonna skip over a couple of verses and move down to verses eight to 10, and we're gonna see a warning. Actually, there's two things that will keep the church prayerless. And then after that, we're gonna circle back to the central theme, the central message, which answers the question, why prayer works. So beginning in verse one, we see the call for the church to pray. So first of all, then, Paul urges the people. Like, this is stronger than the language of a command. And he says, first of all, then. So the then is connected. I urge then. The then is connected to the previous message. In chapter 1, you remember Isaiah preached last week, talked about Timothy receiving the charge um, the, the apostleship or the, um, the charge of the apostle, which was the advancement of the Gentile mission, that gets passed on to Timothy, who then is to implement that in the household of God in Ephesus. And so he says, based on that, then, first of all, here's some things that you need to do. And I want you to notice, who is Paul's target of prayer? Who is he concerned about? What well, says right there at the end of verse 1, that prayers will be made for all people. The point of this verse is not primarily about the different forms of prayer, but that the object of prayer would be the same. It would be the same theme that God is reaching for all people. The church finds itself as the tool of God that we may lead, uh, I'm sorry, the church finds itself as the tool of God for the advancement of the kingdom of God to the whole world through prayer. And you might think, Paul, that's kind of broad. Can you get a little bit more specific? Well, sure. In verse 2, it says, pray specifically for kings, all who are in high positions. So the king would mean the emperor. And it would also mean the local and regional representatives of their governance. Now, this is not new information for the people of God. Jeremiah 29 um, says, uh, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. So they were sent out of the land of promise. They're in exile. And God says, seek, um, seek the prosperity and peace of that city. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you prosper. And notice here that it's not just the emperor, but he says all those who are in authority should be recipients of your prayer. All who are in authority, all who bring influence into your life, those should be the ones we're praying for. This could include uh, your boss, CEO of the company that you work for. This could include um, uh, judges, school principals, teachers, Right, those in charge, the, the police force, those in charge of, of keeping, like we should be in prayer for all those, right, for all those who are in authority over us. Okay, so if that's who we're praying for, what is it that we should pray for this group of people? Well, what we should pray for, I'm having trouble here, Chris. The TV's gone out. 
So I'm just gonna keep on cruising. I don't know if there's a problem on the screen there, but there is here that I see. Um, so what do we pray for? Uh, so the first part of the prayer depicts an ideal set of circumstances. We're to be praying for a certain type of environment. I can't uh, click to the next slide. All right. And one. Man, he's that good. Good? Yes. Look at that. Okay, so the first part, of our per, first part of our prayer depicts an ideal set of circumstances, an environment in which the church is to thrive, right? And so the result of our prayer is that these authorities would create an environment that is peaceful and quiet, and that's how we can live. So Timothy's prayer could be for the salvation of the emperor, and I'm sure that, you know, it says that God desires all to, to come to repentance, that, that all would be saved. But Paul's stated reason for Timothy to be praying for the rulers and authority over him is that they would enable, through their ruling, to create space for the Christians to live peaceful and quiet lives. The decision of these people, these powerful people, can facilitate or frustrate the ability of others to lead the kind of life that pleases God. So the first two elements of the good life that we're praying for is that it's peaceful and quiet. Why? Because war never is never desirable. But it is, it is an interruption, whether it's warfare on a, a, a civic level, um, warfare on a social level, or warfare in your own home on a domestic level, right? That dismantles families. So Paul is saying, pray for rulers that will govern in a way that allows for peace. But the second description describes the manner, it describes how our lives are to be lived. So they create an environment of peace. Then what do we as Jesus followers do with that environment? We are to live uh, godly and holy lives. For godliness and holiness, they work together. And it's a blend of this, this knowledge of God and faith and practice so that in our lives, what we believe to be true is demonstrated in our behavior. What we believe to be true about the beauty and glory of God is demonstrated in the way that we live. That's the godliness and the holiness that is to be evident in our lives. Christians should be bringing right, their faith into the environments in which they live. What you believe about Jesus should shape how you work at your job. It should shape how you uh, exercise authority um, in, in those that you have the privilege of leading. If you employ others, right, you should employ them based on the principles of human dignity that is woven into their design created by God. Right, so as you lead them, it shouldn't be to exploit others. Right, It should be so that there is a blessing on them and the generations that follow based on how you engage them. I love to see, hear these stories. And these stories are out there. They're all around uh, the, the ecosystem of our church where I get to hear stories of the way teachers do this the way principals do this, the way businessmen, businesswomen, uh, healthcare professionals, they leverage their work for the proclamation of the gospel. 
I mean, uh, earlier this year, we told you a story about Jane Caldwell. Jane Caldwell is kind of a superstar over at Inspira. You know why? Because she does her job as an ER nurse based on her extravagant love for Jesus and his extravagant love for her. And they see it and they're like, what is up with this lady? She's really good. Right, so, so we are to live in such a way that it's demonstrating godliness and holiness. So godliness and holiness are the key to understanding why this sort of life, it pleases God. Look at the next verse. Because this is good and pleases God our Savior. And the reason this pleases God our Savior is because what do we learn about God's heart here? What is God's desire? God's desire is that he wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we pray for our leaders to create environments of peace where we as Jesus followers can thrive and demonstrate holiness and godliness. Why? So that people can see the beauty of God. Why would God want that? Because he wants them to see how beautiful he is. He wants people to see that there is a pathway of reconciliation from brokenness to wholeness through Jesus. And you get to see that through that being demonstrated in my life and your life, in the way that we interact with the world around us, the way that we love each other, the way that we talk, the way that we serve. So notice the description here of being saved is about coming to the true knowledge Right, the knowledge of the truth. This is a true sort of knowledge. Again, this is a little like shot at the false teachers of chapter one, where there's a false knowledge available, but that doesn't lead to salvation. Salvation is coming to the knowledge of the truth. All right, so these are the first four verses. This is Paul's call to the church in Ephesus to take up this weapon of prayer. And now we're gonna jump down to verse eight. And here, Paul warns of, of two things that will keep the church either ineffective in its prayer life or prayerless. So Paul reaffirms here the priority of prayer in verse 8. He says, I want the men everywhere to pray. When, whenever the men are gathering together, I want them to pray. In verse 1, he says, I urge. Now he's talking about his desire. And then he's going to warn them of the obstacles that come when they come, when they gather to pray. And he breaks these obstacles down into two categories. There's a, there's a problem with men and a problem with women. And so he's going to start with the men. He addresses them first. So wherever Christian men gather, they should pray. Here's the problem, right? They're lifting up holy hands, but they need to do that without anger or disputing. So what was happening, instead of men gathering to pray, they were gathering to argue. They were gathering to fight. Now think about this for a minute. Arguing, fighting is striving. Striving is the exact opposite of praying. Right, so if I'm striving, if I'm trying to win the fight, if I'm trying to win over top of you in our argument, what am I not doing? I'm not humble before my father saying, God, apart from me, apart from you, I can do nothing. What I'm actually asserting is the exact opposite. I got to win this one. I got to get on top of this one. 
So fighting is striving, and striving is the opposite of praying. So not only is this dishonoring to God, I want you to know that when we pursue arguments and we're striving and we're fighting, we are demonstrating a false gospel. We are demonstrating that victory belongs to me. So I will keep pressing, I will keep fighting. And so what comes off of our life is a false gospel. And not only is it a false gospel that we're demonstrating, we're also causing division within the church. Because if I'm trying to win over top of you and push you down, I am not demonstrating the value of you. Right? So, so division is now being sown into the church of God. So what Paul advocates for is that men would pray with holy hands. Right? Now, now don't get confused by this. He's not saying, okay, is this holy? Is this holy? Is this holy? Right? All throughout scripture, there's lots of examples of, of people praying and their hands are in different postures. The point is not the posture, but it's the quality of the hands. What is the qualitative measurement of the hands? Is that they're holy. What does that mean? Right? Holy hands are hands that have been cleansed, hands that have been forgiven. They've been washed pure, hands that demonstrate humility. As Chris said to us, earlier is to put your hands out as a demonstration of laying something down. Those are holy hands. James puts it this way in James 4, 1 to 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't you know they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And then if you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. So prayer is the place of humble submission to the author and the true savior. And I gotta tell you, I have found repeatedly in my life that when I am in a place of friction, right, with another person, where maybe what in, is inside of me would want to fight and argue and strive. I have found that if I get before God in prayer, something starts to happen. If I, whether reluctantly or just simply out of obedience, when Jesus said, pray for your enemies, right? In that place of prayer, I start to think about that person. And in that place of prayer, I also think about this person. And I start to think about, well, what is my worth and value and righteousness based on? And then I think, what is their worth and value and righteousness based on? And then over time, as I would continue in prayer, I find that the offense doesn't go away, but God gives me the opportunity to view that person differently. And he starts to take away some of the, the bitter edge Again, pain doesn't go away, but take away that bitter edge to where I can actually engage in prayer for the advancement of the kingdom of God in that person's life rather than coming together so as to argue. So the trail that Paul is laying out that he has designed is to lead men in holiness, and we're going to see that he's called to lead women uh, into godliness and modesty, to live in such a way that both their lives observed by those outside the church would point, as they looked at us inside the church, they would draw conclusions about God. 
that God must be among them. So let's look at this second warning. Uh, this is verse, um, verse 9. He says, likewise, the word likewise shifts the focus now to women. He dealt with the men, now he's going to deal with the women. While at the same time, it takes that same command of prayer and applies that to the women. So the women are to be praying uh, as well without, without argument. But then Paul goes a little bit further uh, in, his, in his instructions to women. And it's, a, and it's an obstacle that's going to keep the church ineffective in its mission, even if it's not directly related to prayer. So Paul sets up a contrast between um, modest and appropriate dress and certain styles to be avoided. He sets up adornment that would be outward versus adornment that would be inward. So the word adornment here um, that they should adorn themselves. The language is all about what do you put on? What do you put on yourself? And the outward adornment would signal either modesty and dignity or promiscuity and availability. So obviously, Paul is addressing a certain problem that was existing, just like with the men. When they would come together to argue, the women, as there's a certain group of women, that as they would come together, they would use that as an opportunity to make certain statements by the way that they would dress. Now, you know that in every culture, in every place, at all times, right, that certain clothing would suggest certain messages, Right, that's not new information. Right, that is true every place in the world. So this is true for all cultures and all times. And so it's, it's very important as we come to God's word that we understand a certain way of studying the Bible. And we have to understand the difference between what is a principle and what is a custom. What is a principle and what is a custom. So hang on to those two words. They'll be helpful for your Bible study in the future. So we know that certain things are clearly cultural. They're, they're, they apply to a certain custom. For example, if my ox gores your servant, then I guarantee I will not be paying you the 30 shekels of silver that you're owed, even though Exodus 21:32 tells me I need to. Why? Not because I'm disobedient to God's word, but because I understand the difference between a custom and a principle. Or in the Old Testament, like, there's this, there's this um, command to tithe. And so as a follower of Jesus, if I take that principle of tithe and say, wow, that is so good for me to learn that a tenth, a tithe, represents all that I own. And so with a tenth of what I'm given, I give that back to God as a representative of all that is mine. If I say that, I still don't tithe mint. I still don't tithe with shekels. I turn that into currency that is part of the custom of the day I live in. So I take the principle, right, and apply it through the lens of a custom. So when I do this, I recognize the importance of principle versus custom. And I do that not only in my application, but also in my reading of God's word. So Matthew 10, 10, Jesus is sending the disciples out on a short-term mission trip to go proclaim the gospel. And he tells them, don't take sandals with you. Now, so do I read that? And if I want to share the gospel, am I supposed to like make sure I don't have any shoes on? 
Well, no, obviously, we would read that and say, okay, there's a principle that Jesus is teaching here and a custom by which he applies it. So as we come back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, I gave you some examples of principles versus customs that are super obvious, right? And there's other passages of scripture where we have to do more work to say, okay, where's the principle and where's the custom? But what I am giving you is a tool to ask some questions, right? To say, are there clues in the text that will help us distinguish what's a principle and what's a custom? For example, if something is rooted in created order, that's not a custom, that's a principle, right? Because this is the way God has designed your world and your planet for all of time. Okay, that's not a custom, that's a principle, right? Okay, so I gave you the tool, so let's keep that in mind uh, as we move forward. Principles stay the same, customs, they change. So the custom of immodesty in Ephesus, right, is described specifically by Paul here. Right? And so this is what it looks like. Don't do the elaborate and costly hairstyles that are designed to bring attention to your wealth and position. Culturally, gold was designed to entice and become linked with a dress code of, of even highly paid prostitutes. Pearls were associated with opulence. Right? And then the, their attire was, was expensive. So they would walk into the worship gathering, right, dress this way, in order to draw attention, not to God, which, by the way, is the purpose of a worship gathering, but to draw attention to them. This was women making an entrance so that all eyes would be on them, as if every time they worked, walked into the church, it was like their wedding day, where the music, everyone stands and focuses on them. And there's a clue here that Paul is advocating for a principle more than a custom because he sets up a contrast. He says, don't adorn yourselves uh, this way, but adorn yourself this way. And what does he give as the alternative? Good deeds. That's not literal, by the way. Like you can't slip into some good deeds, right? So clearly what Paul is saying is he wants to put teeth Right to his teaching, he wants to give you a means to understand uh, what he's um, uh, what he's explaining. Now let me let me pause right there and and try and give you a little bit of background uh, that might help you understand the problem. So sometimes we can look at extra biblical material sources from outside of Scripture to shed a little light on what may be the clues that we're seeing in the text. So here's a little background of what was going on. From Caesar Augustus forward in the Roman Empire, there was a movement, particularly among wealthy elite women. And they would be supported by philosophers and teachers, and they were pursuing the emergence of this new Roman woman. Characteristic of this movement was the throwing off of social norms, uh, particularly the social norms of dress, where there, were certain, uh, there was a certain uh, expectation of dress that symbolized respectability. It symbolized sexual modesty. It symbolized fidelity to a husband. So they wanted to cast off that restraint. And another characteristic of this new Roman, Roman woman uh, was a desire that they could enjoy the rights that, that men, that it was acceptable for men to enjoy, which was, um, which was uh, freedoms with exploring multiple sexual partners. 
So in this pursuit of sexual freedom, there were then consequences. So a lot of the writing would circle back around these topics of, of uh, contraceptives and topic of abortion because uh, they had to deal with the inconvenient babies um, that were the result of these, uh, this sexual freedom. And so in their fight against this uh, abusive patriarchal system, uh, these women also wanted to be active then in public life. They wanted to become legal advocates or speaking up in the presence of men or speaking over their husbands, offering uh, to teach and, and to bring philosophy um, to the public. Now, all of this represents a breach at that time in what was the traditional codes um, that was endorsed by the community by the status quo. And so throughout the Roman world, there was this growth of this network, uh, this movement among wealthy women to throw off that oppression. Now, I think you can see by just the short list that I gave you that you can imagine what these women were doing. We're trying to seek um, freedom from something that was oppressive, some system that was, that, that, that was ugly and broken. However, you can also see in their pursuit of casting off that restraint, they found themselves in other areas of bondage, which always, by the way, happens. Because you can never find true freedom in rebellion. If your only goal is to cast off restraint, you will find yourself subservient to another master. Just like the children of Israel, when God led them out of slavery in Egypt, it wasn't just throw off slavery, it was throw off slavery, why? So that they could worship their God. Freedom is only found in revelation. Freedom is never found in rebellion. So there's times where we need to cast off oppressive restraint, but we can only do that in a way that leads to freedom if it's based on revelation. That's a topic for another day. So um, Paul perceived the influence of this movement coming into the church where women were encouraged to dress immodestly and be disrespectful of their husbands as a threat to the gospel and the church's mission. So what is Paul advocating for? What is, what is Paul's preferred uh, wardrobe or outfit for church? Well, it's not a command for men to adorn women in a particular fashion. Actually, it's just the reverse. This is a direction to empower women to adorn. See what it says? Adorning themselves, right? He puts all of the expectation on women to adorn themselves, to make decisions for themselves. So if you go, are going to profess godliness, then how does that look like in the way that you dress? Are you dressing to control your environment or are you dressing in a way that is designed to promote or encourage godliness? So without the specifics and generalities, right, Paul's instructions would be vague. But the danger here is when Paul starts talking about not wearing this, not wearing that, people will grab hold of that and become legalistic about it. That is clearly not Paul's intent. Paul is not saying that women must never under any circumstances braid their hair or wear a gold ring or a pearl necklace. That's an absurd reading of the text. He is not of that legalistic mindset. 
He's not saying this is how short or long or how much leg you can show. Like, that's not what Paul is talking about. What he's doing is he's calling women, think for yourselves, adorn yourself. But the value that should be expressed in your adornment is godliness, right, is, is holiness. So men, stop arguing. Women, be self-controlled. Both of you, your actions are not promoting the revelation of God and do not lead to wholeness and a demonstration that, in fact, God is among his people. The priority here is not about what you're wearing. The priority here is what does what you're wearing communicate about the glory and greatness of God? That's the question. And so he empowers women to adorn themselves with godliness in mind. All right, so we've seen the obstacles. Uh, I want to move towards the, the heart of this message, which is it's coming at the end of our sermon here. Um, so we return back to verse 3, and we're asking the question, if we've seen the obstacles, we've heard the call to prayer, can we talk about why prayer works? Like, why is this the weapon? Why is this the priority for Paul? Well, if you notice the language here, it says this is good, and it's talking about this comes right on the heels of praying for everyone, praying for your leaders. And then it says this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Now, you and I read that, and we're like, oh, yeah, that's good. I like it. Right? We should pray because it's good. But to the original audience, when they heard that, it was like a signal for them. It would be like somebody saying four score and seven years ago, right? Or in the course of human event, like, like we have certain phrases that signal to us a reference point in history. This was a reference point in the Old Testament that when you operated in the sacrificial system where you uh, obeyed what God was laying out or, or you offered the right sacrifices to God, you were doing what was right and good. Leviticus was perpetually concerned with what was acceptable and unacceptable, what pleased or displeased God. And so in this, he's saying, when you pray, it pleases God. Just like in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system, when you sacrificed, when you put something on the altar and the aroma rose up to God, it was good and it pleased God. So the effect of the use of this language is to bring the reader back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. So what Paul is doing here is he is mixing the call to pray with the same results of the Old Testament sacrifices. See, there's this larger biblical movement here that's going on where prayer has replaced um, the sacrifices of the Old Testament for the new people of God. And so we see this throughout Scripture in the book of Revelation, it comes up multiple times where we repeatedly see this theme where prayer would rise up like incense, right, for the delight and pleasure of God. The prayers of the saints were kept in bowls before the throne room of God, and they minister a pleasing aroma to our Father. Now, there are two significant points of, that, that teach us about how prayer works or why prayer works um, as we understand the connection between prayer and the Old Testament sacrificial system. 
The first one is this. Prayer is an act of worship. Did you know that? Prayer is an act of worship. When we pray, we participate in the act of worship. When we pray, we are saying, God, you are the authority. You are the sovereign in this moment. It is not about my activity. It's not about my striving. It's not about what I can do. It's all about you. And if you don't show up, I got nothing. Right? Do you see how that points to the beauty, majesty, authority, and power of God? Prayer is an act of worship. By the way, we've said this all the time here. You are worshiping 24-7, which is why we are told to pray without ceasing. Right? We are to be in constant communion, constant dialogue with God. We walk into a situation not, okay, what does Greg need to say here? What, what, what do I need to do? Where do I need to stand? How do I secure my environment? How do I make people like me? How do I say the right thing? We walk into an environment and say, oh, God, show up. We walk into an environment and we say, God, we, we are nothing apart from you. Right? That, that's an act of worship. And you know what? He likes it. It is a pleasing aroma to our God. Instead of you asserting your dominance, if you pause and say, God, not my will, but yours be done. And the Father loves it. Because you're worshiping him. You are honoring him. So in prayer, he invites us to be with him. This is an act of worship. The second thing is Prayer is an act of worship. Prayer is also an act of war. In the sacrificial system, right, they would offer sacrifices, like particularly sacrifice of atonement, and, and the result of that would be pushing back the consequences of their sin and rebellion. And God used the language of he would forbear. So, so, so the darkness that would overtake them was pushed back. Why? Because their um, sacrificial work looked forward to what Jesus would ultimately do. So they were pushing back the darkness as a statement of faith in, in the fact that they could not rescue themselves, they couldn't cleanse themselves, that God had to do it. God received that act of worship, and he guarded his people looking forward to the day that there would be the ultimate sacrifice. Now, in prayer, this is what we do. Instead of looking forward to the sacrifice of Jesus, we look backwards. We look backwards at the sacrifice of Jesus, and then we look forward to a new reality. And we say, Jesus, you have accomplished this already. Would you apply it here? Jesus, you have, you have made peace. Would you apply it here? Jesus, you have provided healing in the atonement. Would you apply it here? So we look forward to a new reality based on looking backward to the sacrifice of Jesus. Basil Watson, a local pastor here in Vineland, uh, I, I consider him a mentor of mine, whether he knows it or likes it or not, uh, a mentor of mine in the area of prayer. And if you can pray with Basil Watson, your life is better. But Basil says this, the atonement is complete but the work of God's people is to join in on the work of God bringing application to the redemption that has been accomplished in the cross. Right? The, the atonement's done. The victory's won. But what is left is the application of that. And God's people have the privilege of standing in the gap, making intercession for God to apply what he's already won in Jesus. 
So when I pray, I'm asking God to do now what was purchased then. So prayer, it's an act of war. And if we want to see the kingdom of God advance here, if we want to see the kingdom of God advance in our households, in our church, in our community, then we need to get on our knees before God and see prayer as the primary work of God's people. Say, Father, what you did in the past, apply it here. So we find out that there is only one God, right? Again, we're going back to the Old Testament. There's only one God. There's only one mediator, right? There's only one mediator between God and man. Why is this important? Because we're praying for all people. All people, you need to know this. There's one God. There's only one way to get to God, and that is through the mediator, Jesus Christ. And a mediator reconciles two parties that are at war, two parties that are in disagreement. So when we're praying for Jesus to mediate a conflict, we are praying that Jesus would bring two parties together. So when you pray for Jesus to mediate the conflict in your marriage, you're saying, God, bring two parties together that are at war. And that's not the husband and wife. That is the husband and God and the wife and God. And when they get that right, the ball game's over. Right? They can get this right if they get this right. When I say ball game's over, that's a positive. Like it's one victory. I realize I could be turned around a different way. So in mediating conflict in the home, we are praying for the mediator to come in right, and bring restoration, but not primarily between two people, but primarily between people and God. And then they live that expression out together. So friends, the work of Jesus on the cross is complete. And the only thing left is to apply that work in the brokenness of the world around us. And we do that by speaking, praying to the mediator, praying to Jesus to bring application. And it says that Jesus did this how? Well, he made himself a ransom for all. He willingly laid himself down. Again, what happened on the cross is the hope we have for any future reconciliation. And then Paul in verse 7, Paul in verse 7, he really comes strong with, listen, this is, this is, the, this is my job description. This is why I exist. This is why I'm here. I'm a herald. I'm an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. Right? There is good news that you need to hear. And this is also why Paul has appointed Timothy. Right? Timothy's to get in on the action of bringing this message of reconciliation. This is why he's charging the church to pray, to get, on the act, get in on the action of the mission of God in the place of prayer. And so he's charging the church at Ephesus, and I believe he's charging us. This is why men need to stop arguing and get praying. This is why women need to clothe themselves in godliness because there's good news to be shared. There's good news to be demonstrated in and through the household of God. So that's my prayer for us is that we would, like Paul, be heralds of this good news by being people of prayer because we're so absolutely committed to the message of the gospel. 
It's not about where are your hands in prayer. It's not about how is my outfit. All of those things are to be filtered through the lens of how do they move us forward in this great advance called the kingdom of God. How do they point the world around us that is lost to the great reality of God? That's the filter. So I believe God is wanting to invite us to a new season, a new season, a gospel advance. But the only way the gospel is going to advance is if we take seriously God's design for the advancement of his church. God desires partnership with us. I don't know why, other than he wants us. I still don't know why, right? But God desires us to partner with him in the application of the advancement of the kingdom of God, and we do that, we do that through prayer. Prayer is worship, prayer is warfare. Here's what I've realized that I'm dealing with when I struggle in my prayer life. I realize when I'm struggling with my prayer life is I'm struggling with making too much of me. That if I'm not in prayer, I'm actually saying um, what's more valuable with my time is for me to be doing rather than me to be praying. The, the one who's really the agent of change in my functional belief system then is Greg, not God. Right, so... So to be people of prayer is to be people that we recognize our own brokenness and our utter need for God. That's why prayer is an act of worship. But then God invites us to participate in prayer as an act of warfare. Martin Luther said, I am too busy not to pray. So prayer is talking to God. I love this quote by Dallas Willard. Prayer is talking to God about what we're doing together. I think that's a great place to start. Like, God, what do, you, what do you want to do in this situation? God, what are you up to? I know what I desire. I know how I would like to react. What are you, what are you up to in this moment? So how can we grow as a church family in prayer as an act of worship and prayer as an act of warfare? I want to give you a couple practical things, and we'll close with that. The first one is Tuesday night, show up, open sky worship. Like the, the, You can see where this already is a statement of unity just by churches of Vineland coming together to worship God, to, to pray together, to declare the greatness of God. Right? Like, how, does our culture need unity? Right? Is there division? Is there tension? Right? So what a beautiful way for the church to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have something that unites us that, that is bigger than our ethnicity. We have something that unites us that is bigger uh, than our socioeconomic class. We have the gospel that we have been invited into. We get to be part of a much larger story. And so we unite together. So please show up Tuesday night as a statement about the beauty, greatness, and unity that exists in God. The second place that we can grow in prayer as worship and prayer as uh, warfare is in the College of Prayer, which is coming up in September. Diego, what's the dates for that? September 25th and 26th. September 25th and 26th. You can, you can view it online and you can view it live. Um, obviously, live is limited, uh, but 
But make some time to be there. The 25th, the 26th, it's Friday night, it's Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon, depending on which, uh, which you choose. Uh, but invest in growing. Really, the college of prayer is an answer to the question the disciples asked. Jesus, teach us to pray. And so we're trying to explore Jesus, teach us to pray. So consider, consider investing that time in pursuit of growing in your prayer life. But let me end with this kind of diagnostic question. What hinders you in prayer? Kind of what's your problem? What's your issue? What hinders you in prayer? Maybe like the men in Ephesus, you're too bitter and you're too angry. Maybe that's your issue. You're too busy striving and trying to one-up somebody else in order to humble yourself in prayer. Or maybe you're like the women in Ephesus and you're trying to control your environment and you're employing these other means to gain control. Maybe that's your issue. I don't know what your obstacle is, but ask the Father to help you grow in prayer. Ask him to reveal to you what keeps you prayerless. Maybe like me, you're believing the lie that, that, you, that what's best for that situation is for you to be a human doing, right? Getting things done rather than posturing yourself before God in prayer. Last encouragement for you. If you don't know how to pray, you feel insecure about prayer, let me encourage you with one thing. This is what the disciples did. They didn't know how to pray. What did they do? They saw somebody who did. And they said, Jesus, would you, would you teach us how to pray? So if you, if you feel insecure in prayer, find somebody that you think looks secure in prayer and say, hey, would you, would you teach me about that? Like, what, What's going on there? I feel pretty insecure about that. You're not designed to do this alone. So ask for help. That's why we do discipleship groups Discipling relationships, pastorates, ministry teams. We're not designed to be the Lone Ranger, although Lone Ranger had Tonto. We're not designed to be John Wayne. We're not designed to be Rambo and do this all on our own, right? We are designed to be fit together in community. So if you're struggling with prayer, ask somebody. Say, would you help me out with this? All right. So again, I bring you back to those diagnostic questions. What's hindering you in your prayer? And so as we close, I want to encourage you to be thinking about that and asking the Father for revelation as we grow as a church family and being people of prayer because prayer is worship and prayer is warfare. Since you ponder what Greg asked you to ponder, um, I'd like you to stand with us. So I know this, this chapter of Timothy in particular really creates some kind of in-your-face conversations about where we are in our world. Forces us to evaluate some things with our relationship with God. So we wanted to close with a song that's sort of like a call-and-response prayer. So we'll sing a few questions, and then the words that are bigger on the screen are yours to respond with. So we hope you'll be able to follow along with this one. So it uh, redirects our attention towards Jesus in times like this. Do you feel the world is broken? 
we do do you feel the shadows deepen we do do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through we do do you wish that you could see to Jesus here.
Father, we do not want to ignore the command you give us in your word this morning to pray for kings and those in leadership. And so as we begin a new week, we ask that you will pour out wisdom, that you will pour out fear of the Lord in the heart of the leaders and authorities that you have placed over the Garden State of New Jersey. We pray for them because we know that as you work in them and through them, we too receive the impact of their choices and their decisions. So we pray that you will bless them. We ask that you will incline their hearts towards you. We ask that you will save those who don't know you yet, those who have not been found yet. Would you please draw them to you? And Father, for the rest of us, we ask for your grace. I ask that in moments of anger, frustration, or when we feel so messy emotionally, that we will not look at that and conclude that we are to stay away from you, but rather that we will run to you through prayer, that we will see those emotions and those realities as an invitation to come to you. I ask that you will heal us from prayerlessness. And I ask that you will keep us close to your heart. We ask for all of these things in the precious name of your son. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us. Uh, we want to remind you that uh, our new protocol is that you can come. You don't have to make any online reservations. You can just show up. And uh, when we fill this room, we are prepared for an overflow room so you don't have to worry about how we will handle that part. God bless you, and may the Lord strengthen you.